I'm Alka Kurian, host of the new podcast South Asian Films and Books. I'm also a faculty at the University of Washington Bothell, teaching film, literature, gender and human rights. In this first season of South Asian Films and Books, I'm going to look at how South Asian writers and filmmakers explore some of the major issues and help us make sense of the world that we inhabit. From politics to culture, each episode looks at a topic that impacts and shapes the lives of people living in South Asia and its diasporas. This is South Asian Films and Books, an original podcast broadcast from Seattle. Subscribe to new South Asian Films and Books as soon as possible so you don't miss a single episode. My guest today is Kavita Krishnan. Krishnan is secretary of the All India Progressive Women's Association. She's a member of the Politburo of the Communist Party of India, Marxist-Leninist. She's a women's rights activist. And she emerged as one of the most influential activists following the 2012 Delhi gang rape and murder of the 23-year-old student Nirbhaya. In 2019, Krishnan published her book, Fearless Freedom. Welcome to the podcast, Kavita. Hi, Alka. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my absolute pleasure to talk to you. So I'd like to sort of start with um, when I actually came to know about your you know, phenomenal work during the 2012 anti-rape protest, the unprecedented anti-rape protest that happened in India in 2012. And you gave that famous speech that went viral. Can you please talk to me about what happened at that time? What you said in the speech that resonated with an enormous number of women across the country and internationally as well? Yeah, I think think that uh, I was saying something which I had been saying for a very long time. But somehow that was a moment when a large number of people had tuned in, in a way, because of the anti-rape movement that was going on. And I think that all around them, people, especially young girls, young women, could hear uh, people telling them how to be safe. So the entire emphasis was that uh, you have to be responsible for your own safety or that the government should do this or that to keep you safe. And generally, the things that were suggested in terms of policies would be things that involved restricting women's freedoms. So you had hostels at that time, you know, uh, university and college hostels changing their curfew timings to make them more restrictive for women's too. And I think that, you know, uh, the fact that I was speaking to say that... uh, you know, we are not really asking for a safety that is basically a code word for these restrictions. We are asking for our freedom to be safeguarded. And uh, I think that that was a sort of basic feminist insight, which, um, you know, I had been speaking and writing about a while before that. But somehow one of those talks that I gave on the street resonated with so many people at that time because they felt that not enough people were saying that, not enough people were speaking about that. And that is why this idea that the restrictions on autonomy are themselves a form of violence, that they are not a remedy for sexual violence, that they are themselves a form of violence against women in India and probably one of the most widespread forms of violence against women in India and the one with the most acceptance, the one with the most social acceptance, the the form of violence that has the greatest social acceptance, I think that that became recognized and could sort of come to the forefront then. So in fact, for me, you know, what was most important then about that movement was not so much that it was against rape, because you've had movements against rape before in India. But that was probably the first movement where you had a large number of women speaking, asserting their right to be free, their right to autonomy and personhood, and being heard. 
being heard with respect, being heard with a willingness to you know, change entrenched habits. I think that was what was so significant about that moment. In your book, you talk about the complex and complicated intersections between love, autonomy, respect, control. Uh, you talk about the four walls of patriarchy, i.e. the home, domestic violence, <clears throat> honor crimes and rape culture, the policing of women's sexuality to maintain caste, uh, purity, and so on and so forth. So talk about yes. that. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, in my book, what I've tried to talk about is to first sort of map out this whole uh, space, you know, that this whole idea that there is, there exists this violence in full view, which hides in plain sight, but which is not recognized as violence. So these restrictions on autonomy, which are something, uh, you know, if you were to say that there is a particular form of violence, which is especially uh, specific to India and South Asia, then it would probably be this. And in, in South Asia also specifically probably worst in India. What is the shape that this violence takes? Uh, you have a very large percentage of women in India who have who cannot leave their houses without seeking permission to do so. So this um, happens even if they are educated, employed, whichever section of uh, society they come from, whichever caste they come from, very, very large percentage of women uh, say that they, they do not have the right over their own selves. You know, they cannot just decide to exit the house when they like to go for a walk, go to the market, even visit a doctor, nothing. And uh, the other felt thing which a lot of a lot of people have talked about is that women in India feel that you have to account for your presence in public spaces. Mm. You are continuously asked, so you are held. So this is, of course, it, it resonates with victim blaming the world over. But it's a little different in India, particularly because the very your very presence on the street uh, raises the question, why are you here? So a policeman can actually come up to you and ask you, what are you doing on the street at this time, at this hour of night? Why are you not at home? Uh, you should go home. So a policeman can come and say this to a woman in India. And it's very common for this to happen. Uh, and they do it with, entire, with an entitlement, with the sense that they're doing the right thing. Whereas I can't quite imagine this happening in you know, many, many other countries. And of course, when you ask what accounts for this, then you have to come to caste in India. But the caste system means that you can only maintain the purity of the caste system on the structure of caste by maintaining a very strict control over women's sexuality and reproduction. This obsessive control over women has a lot to do with the obsessive fear of the blurring of caste boundaries. And this goes back a long way. This is not something that was just born in this century or the previous century or the century before that. You know, I've even looked anew at things like the Mahabharata and mm -hmm. uh, how is the sense of a doomsday, a Kaliu, a sort of doomsday uh, time, you know, that we're supposed, uh, supposed to be living through right now. What are the contours of that, social contours of that? What are the social parameters? And it turns out that, yes, uh, one of the big features of that, uh, of the Kaliu described in the Mahabharata was that uh, it meant the intermingling of the castes and specifically uh, sexual freedom of women to marry and to have sexual relationships across caste boundaries, that this was seen as a marker of social destruction. But this is not just culture. What I say in my book is, what I establish in the book is that it is not just cultural. So it isn't enough to look at the Mahabharata and say, okay, so many centuries back, this, piece, this thing was written and Indian society has just been following this now. 
No, Indian society has gone through immense changes. The point is the resilience of caste in all those changes and the resilience of this form of patriarchy in all these changes is something that we need to look at. What are the new uh, political avatars that we're seeing of it, the new socio-economic and uh, you know, sort of polit political economy of the avatars we see today? So there I come to uh, what we see in, for instance, modern day factories, which are supposed to be the seats of, you know, basically globalization. So this, so that's where globalized, uh, a globalized labor force is working in India. It's making in India, in a way, you know, it's to, to echo the slogan given by the current prime minister, make in India. So that is where women are making in India for global factories. And the kind of restrictions that are imposed on women in these modern workplaces and the rationale for those restrictions is, say, the good old you know, thing that we have to keep women safe, which is basically a code for we have to keep her safe from her own honor. Mm -hmm. And what are the implications of that? Those are not only sexual, those are also political, those are also a right to organize and so on. So I've looked at that. And finally, I have also looked at, you know, the fact that what is, what is the, at this particular moment, since 2013 up till now, what has changed in India? You're at a moment when you have a, a global rise of the far right and India as well is very much one of the major centers of that. And the way in which they, uh, you know, the controls on women's freedom Restrictions on women's freedom play such a huge part in the ideological infrastructure and, uh, you know, the physical, political activity of the militant far-right groups. And that is, again, something which I've looked at. So I've looked at how this is reproduced in today's India. Mm. So that what I try to do to the reader who is not familiar with India, or even to the readers who think they're familiar with, but who inevitably, you know, call me to ask me, okay, so tell me about rape in India. So it's, all, it's as though if you're talking about violence against women in India, you have to talk about rape and nothing but sexual violence. So there I have gently tried to say, widen your gaze a little bit and look at how the dots are connected between the various kinds of violence. Mm -hmm. And your uh, singular sort of tunnel vision focus on sexual violence actually uh, makes it harder for women to articulate, to assert their autonomy. So, you know, you have, it, it helps to recognize that um, the restrictions on autonomy are themselves a form of violence. And how are these restrictions being reproduced and maintained and rationalized? And um, how are they still acceptable in the 21st century India? In fact, even, uh, it, it, I would say, to, to some extent, they're being challenged like never before, but they're also being reimposed like never before. And you use this very powerful imagery of women's lives that are lived, you know, crashing against the walls like a bird caged in a closed room. These are like some really very powerful imageries to explain, you know, the kinds of uh, restrictions that are placed on, on women and, um, and, you know, how exactly those restrictions are experienced by women. Yes, I've used those images, but I think that what I've also tried to do is to talk about, uh, to not, not just to say that, oh, women live these restricted lives. They don't, actually. They do, they, they're struggling against those restricted lives. Yeah. And yeah. they have been calling out this, call, you know, so for, the, for instance, the image of the bird in the cage is an image by a 19th century woman who taught herself to write and read secretly in her uh, you know, upper caste Brahmin household and uh, where, uh, where it was forbidden for girls and women to read and write. And the way she teaches us of that and the way she is able to uh, talk about the fact that even her presence as a daughter-in-law in a much in a loving household 
uh, where there is no overt violence or anything of that kind, how she finds that life restrictive and how uh, she longs for a certain kind of freedom. And she writes about the Kaliyug, the very same Kaliyug I just described as being you know, discreet in, in Hindu religious texts, it's supposed to be doomsday. In contemporary Hindi films, uh, it is supposed to be doomsday. Um, it's supposed to be the world turned upside down. And yet there is this 19th century woman saying, I want that world to be turned upside down. I wish that, you know, I'm happy that this day has come when the world is being up, turned upside down. So the fact that there is this struggle that our grandmothers have been waging against. This, mm -hmm. this is not just a one-sided repression. This is not just a litany of suffering. This is a legacy of struggle that we have and that we ought to recognize and embrace that legacy of struggle. Yeah. And also what you're saying is making me think about your reference to the ways in which your father raised you, you know, not to be this shy and passive woman, but to walk fearlessly and look boldly into the person's eyes and all. So, yeah, it's difficult for me in fact to write about personal things i realized that when mm -hmm. i was writing this book and um, you know when i was reading anya lumba's revolutionary <laughs> desires where she also writes about how left activists in india women activists in india who are communist feminist activists find it hard to talk about the person mm -hmm. so for me in fact it was not very easy to write about I'm not sure how much of myself I have been able to share. But I did want to write this about my parents and especially about my father because I felt that uh, he was an unusual person in the sense that uh, he was not someone who had, uh, who, who could have spoken to you in any kind of feminist language. He didn't have that language. He didn't know that language. He could not speak to you in any kind of modern politically correct language. He didn't have it. He didn't have any access to that. So in a way, a person who was just an ordinary uh, human being, an ordinary man, shaped by his own times, the fact that he could just have that instinctive empathy with the women in his life, and he could uh, see their, uh, you know, he could, he could see their wish for autonomy and freedom, not as a threat to his authority or uh, as a threat to their own safety, but as a fulfillment of their potential. Um, I think when we were growing up, we didn't realize how wonderful that was. But when when I when I became uh, when I came into my teens and into college and so on, and, and looked around me at other young women who were not so lucky, who had uh, parents who were far more restrictive, far more concerned, um, I wanted to you know share this part of the story to say that you know uh, what made this possible. This means that it is more than possible for people who are not. Uh, you know, not necessarily trained in, you know, they're not necessarily received a liberal training or even a feminist training. They're not uh, typically woke men. And yet they are people who can be fathers to daughters who are actually nurturing of uh, a daughter's personhood and autonomy and how much of a difference that makes to the woman concerned. Yeah, um, that's I right. I just wanted to talk about that. Yeah, no, but I thought it was very important because, well, on the one hand, you talk about you know, this very regressive masculinity, patriarchal masculinity. But at the same time, you break that, you know, monolith by giving insights into, you know, there are these alternative, compassionate, gentler, and more tender masculinity. Yes. Just like there aren't these, you know, monolithical women that are eternally suffering and passive yes. and acquiescent to, to patriarchy, mm -hmm. you know, rebelling yeah. and sort of pushing, yeah. desperately sort of seeking freedom. So I thought that personal insight into your family, into the way you were raised by your father and your mother, it was really brilliant. I really loved it. 
So in your chapter on organized crimes against women's freedom, you refer to violence by caste councils, you know, the cup panchayats against intercaste couples, which is uh, the best recognized form of organized violence against women's autonomy. What do you mean by that? Um, that's actually something that has received some international attention and all of that. So that is basically the kind of violence you see in certain parts of India, especially uh, in Haryana, which is not far from Delhi, as well as uh, Punjab, Rajasthan, Western Uttar Pradesh. So these are basically these community councils which punish couples who violate the laws governing marriage across caste lines. But even marriage inside the same gotra, gotra is a sort of sub caste of a kind. It's a, so it's a, it's a community that is supposed to be a notional community, which is supposed to be like a family, but it is very large. So in fact, there are no blood ties or anything like that. And it doesn't make sense to restrict marriages within the Gotra, but they do. And uh, the, uh, the taboo on marrying inside the Gotra is very strong. But clearly there are so many young people rebelling and marrying uh, you know, uh, out of love and marrying inside the Gotra, outside the past outside their communities. And these um, caste councils sort of really, uh, you know, declare war on such relationships. They uh, regularly terrorize such couples. They, they put out public statements threatening violence against such couples. And then they carry out those threats in very public ways as a deterrent, as a public deterrent to um, other couples, you know, having uh, these sort of relationships. But I think the point which I've tried to make is to say that uh, the tendency to talk about, you see, whenever violence in India, is, uh, gender violence in India is talked about, there's a tendency to talk about it only in cultural terms. So the idea is to say, okay, rape. And so keep asking me, uh, both inside India as well as, you know, uh, from, from outside India, uh, journalists and so on, who will ask, okay, what is it about Indian culture that does this? And I, I feel like telling them, no, there is, I think that is not, uh, by framing the question this way, you are actually framing it in a way that Indian patriarchy uh, benefits, because they would love to say this culture. The point is that there are many cultures. What is interesting is to see who has a vested interest in creating certain kinds of uh, cultural politics. And the caste councils are an instance of that. They are not an inst- they're not a vestige of some far away feudal past alone. And they are preying on modern anxiety. And so what I've tried to show is that not only are those carps in these, you know, so-called, you know, in Indian uh, media, they like to call these areas the bad lands. You know? so, these, so it's not just the bad lands where these things happen. These things have, are happening in Indian cities. They're happening in Indian, modern Indian families. And um, that was recognized by young women in the 2012-13 movements where they specifically referred to the carps as similar to their own parents and brothers. So they said that the restrictions we face in the family is something analogous. So they, they use the, the carp, the cultural caste council, not just as a fetishized idea of some cultural, you know, cultural uh, patriarchy somewhere far away, but they brought it home as a metaphor about the everyday restrictions that they faced in their own lives every day, you know, in, 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 what, in what passes off as loving, liberal, everyday family. Yeah, and then you similarly, subsequent to that, you make, you draw a parallel between, uh, you know, similar kinds of anti-intercaste violence or violence that is performed on Dalit bodies and anti-Muslim violence with the former, you know, the violence against Dalit, you know, acting as a template for the, for the latter. Yes, I mean, um, yes, because this kind of violence, what, what, what I feel is that, 
what I've tried to establish through the book is the fact that you've had this long uh, standing anxiety and uh, political mobilization around preventing intercaste marriages and especially punishing uh, marriages of women from non-Dalit caste with Dalit men. So Dalit is the, um, you know, the, the caste that is considered an, an outcast that is considered untouchable and all of that. So while India has laws banning untouchability and so on, you still have untouchability uh, prevailing in society uh, very, very widely. And you still have uh, caste as a basis for marriage. Intercaste marriages are the most volatile and they face the greatest violence, especially <laughs> when Dalit men marry uh, women who are not Dalit. Again, it's not something which is just cultural. It is not something where people are just reacting because of old, some cultural you know, vestige, some vestigial cultural idea. They are reacting because of modern day political organizing, which tries to shame the parents of women who marry in this manner to shame them or into committing suicide or into committing violence against their own daughters and all against intercaste marriages. And also then seeing how in the last few years, it has also become far more uh, organized, the kind of violence you have by the Hindu majoritarian outfits. Uh, I would not really hesitate to call them terrorist outfits because they do actively, violently militate against and terrorize interfaith couples, interfaith, not just romantic couples, but interfaith friendships, interfaith uh, socializing. Quite recently, after my book came out, there was a, a video of a young uh, woman in Haryana somewhere sitting with uh, some friends. And the friends uh, happened to include Muslim men, and she happened to be a Hindu woman. And you uh, have this video of uh, these outfits saying, aren't you ashamed and we, we take care of you? And how dare you do this? You're a Hindu girl. How dare you socialize with Muslims? They kept threatening her, we call your dad. And she just replied saying, go ahead, call my dad. My dad knows I'm here. And uh, I think that he'll have something to say to you guys, you know. So she says that and she says that in her Haryani accent and all of that. And it's brilliant, you know. So what I'm trying to say is that there's also a pushback like never before against all this. And in a way, these forces are uh, under, uh, they're, they're having their strongest and their weakest moment right now. The strongest moment because they finally have a government in power which is quite openly happy to endorse this uh, and to patronize such outfits. You have a media in India that is uh, willing to valorize, such, uh, willing to uh, popularize the myths that an interfaith marriage is always love jihad. That if a Muslim man is in love with a Hindu girl, it is not love, but it is love jihad. It is part of some kind of international conspiracy to cauterize uh, Hindu women away from Hinduism into Islam and into ISIS and what. This is rubbish. There's no basis for this. But you have Indian media channels uh, doing this. So in a way, they, it is the strongest moment for, these, uh, for this kind of politics. But it's also their weakest moment because I think like never before, you're having uh, people and especially young women, as well as young people in general, pushing back against this mm -hmm. and saying, no, we are not going to be bullied by this. That's and right. we are not going to accept this as inevitable. Yeah, because you can see that uh, you can tell, you know, you can sort of tell by the number of people and unprecedented outpouring of protesters against uh, the new citizenship laws. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, I've been thinking, uh, you know, because my book was coming out at this time, uh, it was getting proofread at the time when the citizenship uh, protests uh, burst out, and I was so involved in those. And then, of course, two months have passed since then, and the book is uh, soon to be out on the stand. And I was wondering, 
what exactly, if anything, is the point of talking about this book and women's autonomy right now? And then I told myself, you know, I've been traveling very widely, um, you know, holding meetings and trying to uh, expand this movement that is ongoing now. And when I look at these stages in rural and semi-rural India, where young women, uh, young Hindu women, young Muslim women, they're suddenly coming into their own. They're suddenly flawlessly, effortlessly, um, you know, uh, leading on stages. They're conducting entire large mass meetings. They are speaking out their words. They are speaking out their poetry. They are, you know, they are, they are dealing with the pulls and pressures of, okay, how do you manage, you know, who gets to speak and who gets to speak how much. So all those things that you do when you're managing a stage, right, when you're managing a movement, all those things, I mean, they are, they are with such grace under pressure, they are flourishing, flourish, flourishing in these movements. And when I see that, I see like saying, you know, this is a movement, of course, it's a movement for democracy and it's a movement against these fascist citizenship uh, laws. Um, but it is also something which is a remarkable moment because I feel as though, you know, if the day comes when somehow these citizenship laws are all rolled back, let's, let's imagine, mm-hmm. let's believe that that day is here. Yes. Even if that day were to come, these people who have come out, these young women, these old women, old women, okay, yeah. grandmothers, know, as well as young know. girls, okay, yeah. and, and, and not just in one Shahinbar. No, every Shahinbar I've gone to, mm. there, are, there are these old grannies there who are so sassy and so full of, you know, absolutely <laughs> political, so brilliant, such brilliant speakers and such brilliant repartee to any idiotic journalist who is who haplessly, you know, uh, happens to come and try and heckle them, you know, it's brilliant, their responses. So I feel like saying, well, look at this wonderful discovery of autonomy and assertion of it. These women are not going to go back into whatever roles that they were expected to play earlier. So I think that everyone is, um, you know, reveling in this or coming to terms with it, you know, whichever way you look at it. But there's an enormous kind of sea change happening and probably, um, you know, uh, taking a little time out to think about uh, what is this thing uh, called women's autonomy and what is it that is being asserted now might not be such a bad thing even in the even in the you know even in the absolute heat and pressure of this movement right now well, uh, it I, may be wise to think about it. yeah but but i think i clearly see the connection because you know like your work right from the time when you know you led this so-called leaderless anti-sexual violence movement that was happening in 2012, 2013 and so on, which was narrowly focused on uh, on sexual violence. And now you are you know, making that connection between what happened there and what's happening now where you have women who are not just talking about sexual autonomy, who are not just talking about resistance against you know, sexual violence, but they're talking about democracy. They're talking about citizenship rights. They're talking about inclusivity. It's not just for themselves, you know, like in a place like Shaheen Bagh, where you have interfaith yes. prayers and you have Rohit Mamula's mother coming and hoisting the flag along with flag. one of the dadis. So it's like a truly secular place. So I think, I think what the women today are doing you know it's like like a multi-generational uh, inclusive secular holistic yeah, um, intersectional movement they've actually taken that you know the movement against sexual violence to the next level you know they're talking about things that are more holistic and totally, totally. Uh, i also feel that you know what i wanted to do with the book was also to uh, help uh, today's generation 
um, connect with past struggles of the women's movement, so the history of the women's movement. Yes. Because yeah. I found that, you know, um, again, this is not just in the international arena, but even in India, you have, uh, you know, journalists and uh, commentators and so on thinking that what they are witnessing today, that this is the first time. They're, they're so eager to say, okay, this is the first time this has happened. Okay. Even with the Shaheen Bhats, there have been so many write-ups by people saying, okay, this is the first ever time that you're having women leading this book, such a movement and all of that. And you, know, you feel like gently uh, helping people to recognize and remember that, you know, this is by far not the first time, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, we stand on the shoulders of giants. And um, yes. the kind of um, thing that you're seeing now, it helps young women to know who came before them. I said that we were, you know, I've had, um, I've tried to talk in the book about the connections between the legacy of women's movement that we have then and the, the developments that we're seeing today. Mm-hmm. And uh, to point out that if you have Radhika Bandla and if you have uh, Fatima Nafis today, then you also had uh, Shah Jahan Abba and Satyarani Chadha in, in the 1980s in, uh, in Delhi. Mm-hmm. And the reason was uh, that they were, they were mothers, who, one Hindu, one Muslim. They were mothers who lost their daughters to dowry violence, uh, dowry burnings, mm-hmm. and uh, came out on the streets in anguish, forged a collective, forged a friendship with each other, mm-hmm. and led this amazing, remarkable movement uh, calling out domestic violence, mm-hmm. violence, which till then was an unmentioned, which did not have a name, uh, which was considered to, you know, it just happened to women and uh, you were not supposed to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So I feel like when I'm, the most rewarding moments for me in the past couple of months have been when I have been to the various Shaheen bars all over the country, but not only the Shaheen bars, you know, the village meetings, the small meetings here and there, where I have shared the story about Satyarani Chadha and Shah Jahanpa and about Fatima Sheikh and Savitri Bhai Phule. Okay, so Fatima Sheikh and Savitri Bhai Phule were the educators in the uh, early 20th century who uh, were among the first uh, people to set up schools for girls. And uh, they did so in the face of terrible social reaction and violence. Mm-hmm. And they were Dalit and Muslim respectively. Mm-hmm. But uh, the fact that it's not just... So Fatima and Savitri, these names were being used in the various Shahimahs and all of that. But I think that we had, in some ways, forgotten about Satyarani and Shah Jahan. And so I had such a rewarding time reminding people about Satyarani, Chadha and Shah Jahan, asking women, asking children, asking ordinary people to remember those names and to, you know, to, to, to talk about those names in our protests today. Mm-hmm. Because these were, these were people, you know, these were moments, uh, whether it is these women or whether it is the mothers of... Uh, Kashmir or the Northeast yes. or uh, or Chhattisgarh or the parents of the yes. emergency days yeah. who lost uh, their children to custodial violence. Mm-hmm. These are people who have uh, taken the pain of the loss of a child, you know, that terrible, unfathomable pain, mm-hmm. and uh, built out of it a politics of empathy and political yes. accountability against impunity. They have, it's a politics that directly challenges the state. And yet it is a politics that has room for empathy, for parenthood, for motherhood, for fatherhood, and, you know, for, for, for thinking about loss in a very concrete way. Mm-hmm. So I feel like the contrast between the pain of these parents mm-hmm. and the old empty rhetoric about uh, Bharat Mata and all of that, asking to kill and die in the name of Mother India, 
there couldn't be a bigger contrast. No, I, that's beautiful. Um, when you talk about parents, you're talking of people of a certain generation. And mm -hmm. the present-day Shaheen Bags is populate, are populated by, you know, um, multi-generational constituency of people, including parents who who have in particular women who have sort of turned away or abandoned or you know taken a break from their domestic duties and brought their children along and you know using this space not only to make a political statement uh, also politicizing themselves developing this you know political consciousness but also politicizing their children right from a very young age Totally. And in fact, one of the things I've been seeing in the protests in the past couple of months, I've been campaigning you know, virtually day and night yeah. against, uh, and especially trying to campaign about non-Muslim constituencies, which are which needed uh, great more work in awakening them to the dangers of the NPR and our CNCA mm -hmm. uh, to the citizenship laws. Mm -hmm. So um, in the course of that, I found that uh, one of the things that uh, people would connect to a lot was when I would point out that uh, 70% of the people left out of the NRC, the National Register of Citizens of Assam, were mm -hmm. women. Yep. And this is something a lot of people do not know. Yep. So the reason was because, you know, here you were talking about multi-generational uh, presence in the protest. Mm -hmm. But it's also important to remember that, you know, what they are, you know, why are they protesting? It's also because they recognize that while they have those intergenerational linkages, how difficult is it to prove that you are your mother's daughter? Yeah. But you are your grandmother's, uh, you know, grandchild. Yeah. Impossible. Women, women have no way of proving this. They do not have the papers. To they don't. Yeah. Women don't have it. Trans people don't have it. Mm -hmm. uh, LGBT people who have uh, abandoned their, who have been abandoned by their families, do not have it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, there are a hundred reasons why women, uh, particularly, lack the documentation to prove their legacy. You know, prove their uh, gener generational existence as citizens okay so it's uh this was something specially felt by women across generations yeah yeah uh, and uh, also you know i've had women um, in my own family as well as others come up to me and say look my my mother doesn't remember where she was born or when she was born she only remembers that she was born in a famine or that she was born during a big flood or some natural calamity of that kind. You know? mm -hmm. So the point is, people do not remember their dates of birth and so on. How are you expecting them to produce papers of all this? So in the light of this, I think that the idea about these, um, you know, these these uh, these women kind of, of finding of a language, a vocabulary to talk about them, their uh, lives as women. But also to connect it with the larger struggle for the constitution, for citizenship, yeah. uh, to seek meaning in the constitution. This is the first time you are having symbols like the constitution or even the national flag or the national anthem being turned into protest symbols. Mm -hmm. so how different is that from the national anthem being used as a symbol to uh, beat up people or you know, mm -hmm. force them to stand uh, inside, a theater, inside a movie theater hall or something? Well, I think I think it's an ingenious way of completely derailing the entire uh, rhetoric of dissent being branded as anti-nationalism. They're using these national symbols. It's yeah. that, but it's also an assertion. You know, to my mind, you know, it's an assertion that you don't own this country. That's you right. Know, there's that, that 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 poem that everyone is saying, like Hindustan kisi ke baap ka nahi. Mm -hmm. Somebody asked me, why are they using this term, Babka? Is it not, you know, this, the idea that this sounds like, uh, you know, you're talking about somebody's father. So is it, are you, 
is it a patriarchal phrase? And I said, no, I think it's in fact the opposite because there are those who assume that, uh, you know, this is, that the country is their father's gift to them, you know, their paternal, pater, patriarchal legacy. And these are people, especially women, saying nothing doing. This belongs to all of us. You know? mm-hmm. It doesn't belong to your dad. You didn't inherit it from your dad. You know. Mm-hmm. So this is a uh, you know this is a wonderful form of assertion. And I don't think that I think it's so organic. And I don't think it is planned in a way. No, it was support. You know, it is. It has come so naturally to people to just mm-hmm. uh, lay hold of these symbols and to say hello. You know, these belong to us. Mm-hmm. These are ours, and they cannot be used for your uh, to to as accessories for your hate campaigns and your patriarchal violence. I wanted to just go back to the whole idea of you know when we were referring to the organized political terror against interfaith mm-hmm. couples. Um, mm-hmm. It was interesting then, you know, in light of what we've been talking about, the whole binary between the shameless uh, shy woman girl or a woman, you know, women being infantilized as girl or as a child and. You know, it just completely derails all of that. Well, it's interesting for me how in the past few years, especially with the rise of the far-right uh, political uh, force uh, to power in India, you're having Indian institutions uh, moving away from their constitutional promises, right? But in these past few years, you've had even, it's not just like you district, you're having state uh, courts and even the Supreme Court uh, doing this form of infantilization. Mm-hmm. So I have, you know, I have tried to look at what that means, how this restrictions of autonomy, how this is so central to the construction of a fascist patriarchy in India today, or to a far-right patriarchy in India today. And that's a very modern phenomenon. This is not, we are not, not, not struggling against oh, some cultural thing that is going to take a long time to change. No, a lot of stuff has changed. There's been a sea change in culture. The very fact that you have young people uh, you know, uh, not thinking twice about marrying across caste lines and party lines and so on. And, they, and this is not new. They've been doing it for a long while now. But I think what is new is the uh, the acceptability, the respectability of these so-called, uh, you know, far-right campaigns in Indochina. The fact that you can have constitutional courts in the country uh, actually discuss the term love jihad without saying what nonsense, you know, get rid of this phrase. This doesn't exist. This is rubbish. Uh, the fact that they keep giving it legitimacy, even though there is not a shred of proof of any such organized uh, crime. In fact, you have proof of organized crimes against women's autonomy, and you're not calling that terrorism. You're not calling that a jihad of any kind. You know, the one political segment in India which has really uh, made itself heard and felt in the past few years, and especially in its anti-fascist, anti-Modi, uh, anti-BJP politics has been that of young women across demographic. Mm-hmm. So young women across communities, across castes, across rural and urban divides. So um, they are not the ones who would qualify yeah. as betis that need to be bachowed or betis that need to be parhaud. Well, that's what this, the, polit- the political phenomenology says that. But, you know, as I've been saying in the last couple of months in all my meetings, it was Satya Rani Chadda and Shah Jahan Akbar who were really doing the beti bachao, right? Because they were protecting their daughters from patriarchy. They were protecting all of us, our, you know, they were protecting the next generation of young women, uh, their own daughters, from dowry, from being killed for dowry, from being burnt alive for dowry. Mm-hmm. And um, this was something which 
uh, we don't talk about as Beti Bachao. Whereas we, we talk about Beti Bachao when we want to see a patriarchal state uh, essentially uh, claiming to protect women by hanging men who are accused in certain cases, by killing men in encounter killings, and above all, by taking away women's own autonomy and telling women, you don't know what's good for you. They're doing this to protect you. So I think that the fact that so many political leaders have been able to speak publicly in the past few years, openly, saying that, oh, these women are shameless, these women who are asserting their freedom, how dare they talk about freedom? They are shameless women and they can turn our shy Indian women into shameless women. Mm-hmm. This tells you, uh, you know, what, if this is in a way, uh, it ought to be an introduction, not only to anyone introdu- interested in gender in India, but anyone interested in uh, all over the world in fa- the rise of far-right politics. Um, and the very fact, I told you, Zumini Bharti was a, a poet during, a Tamil poet who wrote during India's freedom struggle, so in the early 20th century. And he was someone who was writing uh, songs saying women should enjoy fearless freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, that was happening there and a century ago. And now you're having uh, you know, politicians, ruling politicians, people who are in power today, who are using this kind of language, uh, are telling women that they ought to be shy and not shameless. Um, this is a really a big warning signal. And the only good part is that so many women are getting up to say, you can call us shameless. Uh, we don't, uh, we do not uh, want to lay claim to shame. We are not going to say, oh, sharam haya yes. we have sharam, we have uh, shame. Please recognize us as women who have shame. No, you please call us all shameless. We're more than happy. Whether it's the women of Shaheen Bagh whom you are trying to shame by saying, oh, they are women who are uh, sitting on the roads. You know, essentially, they're, they're free women, they're street women, they're public women, publicly available women. Mm-hmm. It doesn't shame us anymore, not at all. And instead, uh, you say that the people that actually, who should be shamed are the ones that are violating women or people that are targeting women, for example, in the context of Swachh Bharat, where you say that, you know, it's described as a success story for nudge economics, uh, and it's it's projected as the biggest women's movement, but it's deeply problematic because, you know, it's targeting women rather than the community. It's making women... Yeah, I'm increasingly appalled, actually, that even critics of Modi actually have fallen for this idea that at least one of the things he's done has been to do this old toilet. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, open defecation in India is as high as ever because uh, the Swachh Bharat kind of targeting of open defecation essentially is coercive and it is um, coercive and it is patriarchal and it reinforces the caste uh, notions, which are actually the reason why open defecation is so high mm-hmm. because of false caste based ideas about purity and pollution. So, without addressing the elephant which is caste, they're going about trying to uh, coerce poor communities into, um, you know, using toilets. And that, of course, is not happening. The opposite is happening. And the patriarchal messaging over Swachh Bharat has had actual consequences, violent consequences for women, because they are shamed for defecating in the open, but they have no option but to defecate in the open. Mm-hmm. So this is a terrible situation and I find it, you know, uh, I was so disappointed because I saw this wonderful, uh, you know, this, this very effective show by John Oliver, you know, last week tonight. Yes, last yes. Show, uh, mm-hmm. on Modi. And mm-hmm. I felt that he did an excellent job 
But the one <laughs> thing where even he concedes is that, oh, this guy has built toilets. Yeah. But let's say that's not true. Any uh, impartial study has shown that no, open education uh, is still as high as ever. And the only thing that has changed is that the degree of coercion and the degree of violence faced by poor communities and especially by poor women, uh, by vigilante mobs that came to stopping communication, you know, state-backed vigilante mobs, that has increased. And that has resulted in uh, sexual violence and deaths in, you know, you name it. Talk about the central theme then in your book. Fearless freedom. I mean, you refer to it, uh, you know, a couple of times. And here you raise the slogan of Nari Mukti Sabki Mukti, you know, Bekhaf Azadi. And I'm, I'm just making that connection that because yes. you use that Bekhaf Azadi, that became yes. like the resounding you know, slogan yes. of the time. Yeah. So talk about that. I think that, you know, uh, when people use the word Nirbhaya, yeah. I know that a lot of girls and women felt very uneasy with the term. In a way, they felt that is it not okay to be afraid? Why is it that if I'm a victim, then you would have to describe me minus my fear as Nirbhaya, as somebody who's fearless, right? So I think that uh, there was a conversation around this then and the idea that we do feel fear and that our fear has a basis and that it's okay to feel that fear, mm-hmm. that we do not have to claim to be fearless when we are in fact fearful. But that... Um, we have a right to fearlessness and it is others who owe us that fearlessness. That is not something that we need to prove to anyone. So you are asked to be both, you know, shy and both, you know, take precautions and so on and be fearless. And uh, fearlessness is what we want the state and uh, people who enjoy power to protect. We want our employees to protect our fearlessness. We want the state to be accountable to our fearlessness, to invest uh, public money in uh, public transport and uh, you know, other things that can actually promote our fearlessness in public and private spaces. So, um, and the idea that of course we feel fearful even inside our own homes, not just in public spaces. And say that uh, basically what we want to do is to shed the fear of being seen as being shameless or disreputable or uh, you know lacking in uh, womanly modesty and so on. I'm so so glad that I could uh, Amrita Patil's wonderful painting of the Akhisari Maika could uh, you know that she was willing to uh, have me use it as the cover of the book because that that image in fact says such a lot because it connects India's own traditions with uh, you know cultural traditions with uh, the fearlessness we're talking about today. Uh, it also tells you that the Abhisarika Naika is basically the, one of the Ashtanaikas. So these are basically, yeah. in a way, they're a trope. Yeah, I don't know very much about the art, but uh, it's basically about the image of uh, women in eight kinds of uh, emotional states of being. Mm-hmm. So in eight kinds of doing. And one of them is this, the Abhisarika, the one who is a lover heading out into a dangerous night, braving all kinds of dangers to meet, to meet her lover. So uh, she's, she's also heeding her own voices and the voices of society who are telling her to be fearful, telling her to hold back. So what I've tried to say is that, you know, it's a pursuing of desire, which, is, yeah. which could be sexual desire, but it could also be a whole lot of other desires. It could be many desires together. So the, the desire for education, 
which is so often conflated with sexual desire where women students are shamed saying no, you are sexually promiscuous because like, if you are a woman student you must be you know and this goes back such a long way this goes back you know at least two centuries uh, you know that women who seek education are sexually loose you know? um, so the, the pursuing of any desire whether it's education whether it is just a simple uh, you know pleasure of being out in uh, the street at any time of day or night you know uh, seeking just wanting to go out for a walk alone or with friends or whatever it is or just seeking having pleasure having, in public having a chai at a dhaba having a chai at a dhaba having pleasure in public spaces having uh, as well as of course having sexual autonomy so on. Yeah. the idea of a complete autonomy and the pursuit of that autonomy so you're being allowed to pursue that autonomy fearlessly i think the book is basically about how difficult it is in india to do that and yet how so many are asserting that i have to do that and how we need to recognize that as being one of the most significant um uh processes and phenomena of our times both in terms of violence against women's autonomy and the assertions of women's autonomy and of course i've also tried i think one of if you asked me um you know one of the weaknesses of the book in a way uh, which i wish i could have spent more time with uh i would have said that i would like to spend more time talking about not only women but about uh trans persons and uh, uh you know people of uh, different sexual orientations um you know so non heteronormative non gender conforming people um i have talked about them i have even mentioned instances where uh, the same processes which uh, militate against violently against interfaith caste couples and uh, same group of couples also militate against uh, transgender and lgbt couples and persons right so i have talked about that but i would have said that in fact um there's a need to actually build more on that and i do hope that in the conversations around the book there will be a productive and uh, sort of uh, positive critique of the book in that respect and towards the end of your book you also talk about the ways in which we need a revolutionary change a change a society you know imagine a society you think about how even though it may not be possible now but you know we can always hope towards achieving a society which is completely free of all hierarchies because it, you claim that a genuine autonomy is meaningless if it's not for all the women when you refer to how Absolutely. feminism for the 99% doesn't believe <laughs> in breaking yeah, yeah. the glass ceiling while leaving the majority of women to clean up the yeah, shop that is yeah that's a phrase from a book by a very close friend of mine co-authored by a friend of mine dit patacharya because i feel that yes absolutely uh, uh, you know the idea that people keep saying to us in the feminist movement or the left movement other revolutionary movement that oh you are so negative so what they are saying when they say you are so negative is that they mean that you are critical of the state why can't you see something positive in what the state is doing Mm-hmm. and i put it the other way now i said why can't we see more positive things in what society is doing mm-hmm. uh i truly think that it is an act of hope to believe that society has it in itself to change and uh to to be more egalitarian and these movements that we have struggling for change are not negative movements they are movements that have, that embody the uh you know the, the the those leaps of faith and those uh 
the firm positive belief. What can be more positive than believing in the face of so much evidence to the contrary that you can actually have a benevolence liberation or uh, LGBTQ liberation or um, you know, the Dalit's liberation or a casteless society or a society where uh, interfaith love is celebrated rather than hatred between the faiths, right? So the point is the movements that are struggling for this are in fact the, the most positive things that you could ever have. You know, I tried to uh, say uh, towards the end as well that, um, you know, when you talk about something, it's not just a utopia. Utopia is when you're just, you know, khayali pulao bana, just, you know, having castles in the air. There's not a castle in the air. The whole idea is that you have to have a destination and then you have to have some kind of map. If you don't have a destination, then you don't have a compass in your everyday day-to-day -day struggles about where you're headed. Every struggle is equally important, no matter, you know, even if it is a little everyday, little assertion, little pushback against families inside your own home. Okay, But the point is that those, uh, this oppressive structure, we want to get rid of it. And whatever small and big measures there are towards getting rid of it, that is the distinction between a feminist or a revolutionary movement, uh, which has that goal and a compass pointing towards that goal and guiding you in your education struggles. And the statist kind of interventions which say, okay, here we are, we'll work with this or that NGO and we will tell you, uh, you can have a self-help group here. But where you're actually celebrating, uh, you're, you're forming that self-help group on the back of the idea that women lack autonomy. And so they, if they take loans, they can't run away and fail to pay the loans. You know, so that, that is not taking you that even a step in the direction of liberation. It's the other way around. And so what I try to say is that whatever you do, small and big, um, has, should be in the right, a step in the right direction, and it should be in the direction of uh, liberation of all. And the point is that, uh, you know, these are not just jargon phrases. People have given life to them in the struggles that I've described in the book, right, by of working class women and Dalit women and so on. So the point is that when you read about it that way, when you don't see it just as being some a uh, dry formulation by a communist party Politburo member, you know. No, no. When you see that, well, these are actually part of the lived lives of women. They are leading these lives, even if, um, you know, uh, uh, it, it, these are not just some pages from some, uh, you know, dry book by some, you know, communist uh, bearded guy somewhere. Okay, that's not the point. The point <laughs> is these are lived lives. These are lived people finding uh, uh, true meaning in these things and they're having arguments with those bearded guys as well as well as with all the colopas in the movement okay women men everybody and it's part of those arguments and trying to make sense of the world around us that we are actually headed in the uh, we are actually able to uh, revolutionize our present and uh, you know hope for a more revolutionary future yeah. And what can be more hopeful and more positive than that? Absolutely. Well, so thank you so much. I'm sure you didn't expect it to last so long. Maybe. No, no, I enjoyed myself so much. And it's thank been so good to have find some breathing space in the middle of all this madness. In I know, I know. Yeah. And reflect a bit. So, um, but I wanted to thank you very much for everything oh, that pleasure. you do your activism your, your writing you. your speaking uh you know i listen to you quite a lot on you know your youtube your recorded 
speeches and all. It's really beautiful to be able to connect with you intellectually. It's lovely, lovely. Lovely. It was, it was such fun. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for your time. You're welcome.